Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today, I have a special guest. I have Glinda Dames Fincher. She's a co-chairperson for Northern Ohio ARC Blood Services Sickle Cell Initiative at Northern Ohio American Red Cross. She holds a bachelor's degree in medical technology and has worked in some major hospital laboratories for 26 years. She also works with sickle cell advocacy groups at both the local, state, and federal level for over 40 years. So welcome to the podcast, Glinda. Thank you so much for having me, Eric. The pleasure is all mine here because we actually met, give listeners a little background, at a local event where I was trying to help vaccinate some COVID patients with some of my staff, got talking with Glinda kind of found out some of the issues that sickle cell patients have with pharmacies, especially when it comes to things like opioids, given the amount of issues that we have just with opioids in general in this country. So I thought it was a pretty cool issue to talk about. And one thing you brought up was that sickle cell patients really got a raw deal when it comes to some of the issues with opioids. Can you kind of elaborate on that as to why? Yes. Well, first, a little bit about what sickle cell disease is or sickle cell anemia and sickle cell disease is used as a term to describe a group of inherited blood disorders that involve your abnormal hemoglobin molecule in the red blood cell. It's called hemoglobin S. You're born with this. It's genetic, passed on from parent to child. And the, the hemoglobin carries oxygen. So when your hemoglobin is wrong, your body is under severe stress and destruction of parts of any organ, any and all organs. And the sickle cells stick together, they clog the blood vessels, especially the small capillaries. And when there is a acute sickle cell episode or what's called a sickle cell crisis, this is causing so much blockage of blood flow to various parts of the body that it causes tissue death. And that releases substances into the bloodstream that cause severe pain. So because we have severe pain when we have acute episodes and these come on all of a sudden, you can go to bed fine and wake up two hours later in some of the worst pain you've ever experienced in life. And it can be anywhere in your body, your, your bones, any of your bones, your muscles, your abdomen, chest. So this destruction causes organ damage that can become cumulative. The acute pain is so severe. I try to describe it. it it's kind of indescribable, but one way that I've described it to medical school classes is if you slammed your hand in a car door, your fingers, but you did not release the pressure, you didn't take your hand out, it's crushing bone pain, and you keep the pressure on those fingers with that door. Now imagine that pain for hours days, it could even last weeks. And imagine that pain not just in your hand, but say your shoulder, your arms, your chest, your hips, your knees. That's the kind of pain sickle cell causes. So in acute symptoms, we need the only thing that is strong enough to even, it doesn't stop the pain, but it just gets it to a point where you don't want to kill yourself, is by opioids. Those are used along with fluids, blood transfusions, and depending on what organs might be affected, if you're in pneumonia, then they got to deal with the infection and all of that. 
but the narcotic or opioids are a very big part of that treatment to try and get your pain under control until the sickle cell crisis subsides. And then when you have all of this damage going on over and over, so this starts in infancy. Within about six months, babies can start having these acute episodes. These can come and go sometimes every month, every couple of weeks, or some people, you know, maybe two, three times a year. But it can happen such that you're getting so much damage that by the time you're a teenager, your spleen is so worn out, it doesn't even function anymore. It's dried up to a little nub. Some people had their spleen removed because of something that happens with the sickling when they're a a child. But so your spleen's been damaged. Your bones, especially hip joints, shoulder joints, spinal columns, also get lower limb wounds, ulcers on the legs, ankles that don't heal or that are extremely hard to heal. So you have all this chronic pain from those things. Between the episodes of acute pain, you got the chronic pain. So anti-inflammatories such as ibuprofen, naproxen, those kind of things can can help that on a day-to-day basis. Plus, since you have been having these kind of pains for years, if you live to, say, adulthood, you have developed a very high pain tolerance. People that end up starting having a lot of the chronic pain need a narcotic of a different type, along one that, that, Eric, that you can talk about more, but it still might be a narcotic in order to function every day. So with this opioid epidemic, you can imagine that some people run into a big problem with getting the medications that they've always gotten and being able to function, to go to school, to work a job. These people have always gotten these opioids. Morphine, Dilaudid, uh, usually if you're taking that at home, it's like oral Dilaudid, hydrocodone, those things that have helped them function in life now are considered so badly. They've always had a stigma, but now that stigma is much worse. And some of the things that the government has done, such as the CDC in 2016, their opioid chronic pain management with opioids, the guidelines that they wrote actually include an exception for cancer and for sickle cell. But most providers, doctors, nurses, so forth, have never read the whole document and see that sickle cell has an exception. It says do not follow those guidelines. They're supposed to follow the NIH pain management guidelines for sickle cell. And so that has become a big issue, especially since 2016. Yeah, and we've seen a lot of crackdowns with pharmacists and not really, I shouldn't say pharmacists, but we've seen a lot of crackdown when it comes to just like the policing of opioids in general and major deprescribing of them over time, especially in our state here of Ohio, when we had uh, Governor Kasich in office, that was kind of like one of their main goals. They rolled out the ORS or the prescription drug monitoring program, which now every state has or is getting since Missouri is the last one. It's kind of been one of those things that we are, we use it to kind of keep track of it. And I'll be honest with you, I remember learning about some of this in school, but it was not at the forefront. And when I started practicing here in Cleveland on the near East side, 
all of a sudden I had a lot of patients coming in with some high doses of opioids and things like that. And it was kind of hitting me like, what the heck is going on? And then, you know, you call, you do your due diligence and you find out, okay, it's sickle cell. And you're thinking, well, how much pain can it be in? And you start talking with patients and you're like, oh, okay, maybe they're being dramatic. But then when you talk to the prescribers, they go on more and they describe exactly what you did to lead into this podcast. And you're like, yeah, that sounds pretty terrible. I get why you would want opioids now. And it makes sense. And I think it's a good call out that the guidelines do stipulate like oncology or cancer issues and sickle cell are like the exceptions here, right? Like let's make sure that we rule those things a different way for kind of how we're handling it. And for the listeners, because this is a good call out point for me, I'm going to put some links to a lot of good sickle cell references in the show notes, like some of the management guidelines, which actually Glinda sent me. So I'm going to have to eat a little crow here. She might know more pharmacology on sickle cell than I do. But it's, it's a good call out. And so I want to make sure to include that to share for people because it's something that we can use to help make it better for our patients. You know, one thing that me and you discussed was, and this has been really big with kind of COVID when the random drugs people are trying to use to treat it, like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. But yes. we're, we're kind of put in this police state now as pharmacists where we have to try and figure out like what's right and what's wrong for what's being prescribed to us here. And a lot of times with prescription drug monitoring programs, opioids now, we've been able to do that much easier. But one thing with that sickle cell, now it starts standing out more because we're seeing these people on these chronic doses and these large amounts of it. When we do that, what does that look like for you guys when you come to the pharmacy? Like what happens? Well, since I'm older and have experienced, I'm 62 and have sickle cell disease, the worst form, which is SS, even 30 years ago. People with sickle cell disease, including myself, experience being policed by the pharmacist. There was one time that, and, and I was actually working for uh, one of the local hospitals in Cleveland, and I had a sickle cell crisis. had gone to the emergency room. My mom took me. They treated me in the emergency room, wrote a prescription for, I think, yeah, it was Vicodin. The discharging physician in the ER wrote a prescription for Vicodin. And so as soon as the medication that they gave me, which was morphine, in the ER would wear off, I was going to need that Vicodin because I'm still in crisis. But at that point, we thought I could handle it at home. So my mom takes me to the pharmacy that was in the area that I lived in, which was one of the suburbs of Cleveland. When I went in with the prescription, because I'm barely able to walk, I am still in a whole lot of pain, and I go in with the prescription. The person at the pharmacy assistant took the prescription, looked at it, and then she said, hold on a minute. She walked back to the pharmacist who was back in the shelf. This was at a, you know, a, a local drugstore, big chain drugstore. She walked, walked back, said something, showed him the, the, the prescription. She said something. They were too far away for me to hear. She said something to the pharmacist. They both looked back at me at the counter. And then the pharmacist looked back at her, at the assistant, said something. Then the assistant came back to me and said, we don't have this drug. <laughs> I knew it was a lie. <laughs> yeah. Number one, the pharmacy that it was, all of that. I knew this was false. And I could see they were in plain sight of me, that basically that pharmacy just looked at me. Oh, okay, no, you're not getting this. 
but we just say we don't have it. And I'm like, what? By this time, I'm darn near in tears because the sickle cell crisis are, you're always struggling to not cry, but it's that bad. So I go back and I said, mom, they won't feel it. And she's like, what? So I said, okay, maybe it's because I'm in a predominantly white suburb, but that's where I live. Right. And so I said, well, maybe take me back into the inner city. We'll go to the same pharmacy and, you know, the same uh, pharmacy chain and see if I can get it. It was closer to where the hospital was. Went there, no problem. But it was about six miles away from, so here my mom's taking me from the hospital, about six miles out to where I live. That pharmacy wouldn't do it. And she had to take me back, took me back into the inner city, another six miles again, then come back home. That's a lot of traveling if you're in if you're in pain. I mean, I have, yeah. I don't think I've ever been in that much pain. I'll be honest with you. I've, I've never even broken a bone. So who am I to complain? But you know, six miles and, is a lot. <laughs> yeah, and then when you look at now, it's actually worse. When the CDC first put out their guidelines in 2016, because I'm a sickle cell advocate and I'm active with the hospital that I go to. Uh, University Hospitals of, of Cleveland for my care, my physician and the nurse practitioners, you know, they feel free to speak to me about certain things. We keep privacy and so forth. Right. But they told me how angry they were that now all of a sudden they couldn't even get the medications that they normally had been prescribing their patients at home. They couldn't get them. The pharmacies were refusing them. Yeah. So what they had to do was start going to talking to, and I remember my doctor, the head of the sickle cell program uh, at that time, they were worn out already. 400 adults with sickle cell in one adult program with one doctor yeah. and two nurse practitioners, and we take a whole lot of care. They were having to spend a lot of time. They said, well, you've had to go on the phone with the uh, pharmacies that, what do you call them? They uh, package your, say, if you've got like five or six different things that you need to take. Oh, that day. like the compliance packs and stuff like that. Yes, yes. They had to go, the doctors had to literally talk to the directors. I mean, go way up the ladder and show, look, this patient has needed this medicine. This patient goes to school. This patient has a job. This patient is ready. They need this to function. So they were able to, after doing a whole lot of work like that, find some pharmacies that, you know, on basically a mail-order pharmacy that would get the medication. But the amount of time and effort that it was taking them away from actual patient care. That's crazy. Uh, there are also times that the physicians have been upset, and this is not just here, this is all over the country, uh, but just I can tell you what, you know, my local physicians were telling me and nurse practitioners, they were in the emergency room because now there's a shortage <laughs> mm -hmm. because what did the government do? Said, okay, stop making, told the pharmaceutical company make less of these opioids. So then there's a shortage. Uh, I've known a few people that needed hip replacement. It took them six months to schedule it. Because they knew, the anesthesiologist knew they did not have enough medication to give this patient post-surgery enough to keep them out of severe pain. 
from having their bones drilled in an artificial <laughs> Yeah. It also caused rationing in the ER. And I remember one of my nurse practitioners, she was just fuming because what they were doing in the emergency room was the cancer patient, if it was cancer patients in there in pain, and we're treated by the same doctors, came up. It was a cancer patient in pain in the emergency room and a sickle cell patient at the same time. The cancer patient would always get the med. Known people that have literally overheard, well, actually, I've even heard it. A nurse say, oh, those are sickle cell patients. They're no priority. Hmm. When somebody that they're training in the ER is asking, well, why is it like two people over here that are in tears? These are adults. And they've been sitting here for three hours. Oh, those are sickle cell patients. They're not a priority. What, what's disheartening to me is when you look at the data from the sickle cell patients, it's not affecting a lot of white people. It's generally affecting your African-American minority group. And so really, when you look at that and the demographics of it, it almost looks like a form of racism, segregation, whatever you want to call it. That is just terrible in the way healthcare system works. Now, one thing I always like doing is I like trying to focus on solutions when it comes to stuff like this. One thing I know we've done in Ohio, and I think it helps because it's helped me at least be able to kind of differentiate some of these patients, and yes, some of them were sickle cell patients, is including diagnosis codes on prescriptions. Do you think that's a good way to go? Because now the pharmacist is seeing the exact diagnosis, so they can look at it and go, oh, I get it now. This patient would definitely qualify for this. I thought about that. First off, I think it would be a good idea because it cuts down on the time it would take to get prescriptions filled. Mm-hmm. You know, with all the rigmarole with, uh, oh, well, wait a minute, why does this patient need this much of a narcotic medication and so forth? That if you saw the diagnosis code of sickle cell, that, that that could give you answer your questions. Why? But at the same time, <laughs> because we've had so much stigma and because from the rules that I've seen, in the last couple of years, they are making pharmacists, police, physicians, writing of narcotic prescriptions that this might, in some cases, make things worse for us, make the stigma work like, oh, this is a sickle cell patient. Yeah, they've been in here, you know, every month. Blah, blah, blah. So <laughs> yeah. I think if they, put, if they do put that diagnosis on a prescription, there needs to be a lot more education about this disease in this country. And just to give people some of the statistics, worldwide, there are more than 3 million people with sickle cell disease. Over 300,000 babies are born per year in the world with the actual disease. Because you can be what they call a trait, which means you're just a carrier. You don't have the disease. But you carry one gene that can be passed you got to have a gene from each parent to have the disease. These people are predominantly born on the African continent, India, Saudi Arabia, around the Mediterranean. So that's where we see more Caucasians from Greek and Italian ancestry. It's also in Asians. It's in every, every ethnicity in the world because we have migrated around the world. In the United States, there's 2 million Americans, which is about 10%, and about 10% of that is African-American, is of the African-American population, has the trait or is a carrier, where they have one gene. So that's about 2 
two million Americans that are carrying this that they can pass to their children. About 3,000 babies are born every year in the United States with the disease. There's approximately 100,000 and probably more sickle cell affected that have the disease in the United States. So because it's less than 200,000 with it in the United States, they consider it a rare disorder. However, in the African-American community, it's not rare. Also, the Latino community. Latinas are about uh, 1,000 to 4,000 4, of them in the United States have the disease. So, and are part of that 2 million that are carriers. So there needs to be more education. That's one thing that a whole lot of the advocacy organizations all over the country have constantly been trying to push for. It is taught in medical school. It was the, the discovery of sickle cell, what it was in the United States in 1910, was the first discovery of DNA and genes. So it's been over 100 years that they've known about this disease. The NIH put out its first sickle cell management guideline, the whole book, in 1984. It's been updated repeatedly, and in 2014 was the last update from the NIH manual. Then American Society of Hematology, they, in 2018, they put out also uh, guidelines and management for sickle cell disease, including pain management. And that from ASH has also been put into an app that any medical professional can download to their phone. Also, say you haven't seen a sickle cell patient since med school or wherever, and or a nurse or even a pharmacist, you can go to, you can actually call a physician. They have a number from ASH, American Society of Hematology, and ask them for assistance, especially if it's an emergency situation. And then, okay, well, what, how should I be treating the sickle cell patient? Also, most patients now in the United States, if they have a hematologist, have a care plan that's for what how they should be treated, how much medication they typically need, you know, if they're in acute crisis. And so that care plan is supposed to be followed by emergency room physicians. In many cases, it's not, but it is supposed to be followed. That would make sense because of how often sickle cell patients are in the emergency room. I guess I didn't think in my head that, you know, and again, I'm not, I have a little bit more limited scope from what I, what I know with some of this, but I didn't think in my head that you'd, consider an emergency room doctor necessarily part of someone's care plan, but that makes sense given the chronic pain outbursts that happen with this, right? Yes, because myself, I have never been on a chronic narcotic. I have used ibuprofen, and a lot of it has been because I was educated. That was part of my college education. So by 20 years old, I knew all the ins and outs of this disease because as a laboratorian, we've got to be able to not only run the tests but interpret them and help a physician to to interpret disease. And we have to know the disease system. So since I was so educated, you know, I graduated from college in 1981. So I knew how to take care of myself. Most people, and I know how to speak to doctors and nurses and teach them, which I have to do a lot. Yeah. Actually, in the medical situation, I've had to tell a nurse, you do not put ice on the joints of a sickle cell patient. 
ice causes sickling, just all kind of things. The educational part of this is so, so important, and there are so many options now. Yeah. Um, so if they put this into a prescription diagnosis code, there's got to be the educational component with it. All right, so I'm going to take a minute here, and I'm going to give you a magic wand, right? We kind of talked about why my idea had some pros and cons to it. I'm going to give you the magic wand. You're a sickle cell patient. What would make your experience better so you don't feel like you're always being judged? And to be fair, I've been critical of opioid prescribing before, but when you're a pharmacist and you see a lot of these things and you see the same doctor for quote-unquote low back pain and you have 60 patients coming from their office on every single day, you do get jaded. So, so, you know, I'm guilty of this too. And I've had sickle cell patients where I've questioned it. I've had to do my due diligence because of the law and things like that. And then once we got established, I was like, okay, we're good. Like, you know, I I now understand and I can make this better. But I'm going to give you the magic wand. What would you do if you could do one thing to just make it better for sickle cell patients? Actually, number one would be funding from the government. The funding for sickle cell disease treatment is very disparate compared to other diseases that affect a lot fewer people. For instance, hemophilia's uh, sickle cell is about 100,000 in the United States. Hemophilia has about 30,000 in the United States. Hemophilia gets seven to 10 times more funding per patient from the United States government than sickle cell does. Wow. I could go on a whole bunch of other diseases that are a lot, much less common than sickle cell, and they get a whole lot more funding. That is one of the biggest problems with getting treatment centers and getting this education out. Because when you're treated at a treat where there are treatment centers, which there's very few in the United States, you do better. They're not in hospitals much because you're being treated by people that are that specialized in the disease. Right. And when a disease takes the approximation now from the United States government is about one point six billion dollars is spent on sickle cell disease care. One point six billion. That's how much the insurance companies and most people with sickle cell are on Medicaid, for that matter. So when you've got an expenditure like that, but you only have about 10 federally funded sickle cell centers in the country, then you're wasting money because it's, and it's been known, it's been proven that the places that do have sickle cell centers and have had them for decades, it has been proven they got research after research after research study that those patients do better. It costs less money because they're not in the hospital as much. They're not in the ER as much. They're not getting all of the chronic things that happen to us. They're being treated up front better. So my number one thing would be would be that is the funding because I think a whole lot of this follows that. It's very poor funding. You would see a lot fewer people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, needing those, needing these narcotics if they were treated right up front for their, so that they're not getting as much damage. For instance, I'm on a chronic red blood cell transfusion program for like 20 years. I get two units of red cells every four weeks. That helped heal and keep healed a chronic leg ulcer I have that's got me out of multiple organ failure. The fact that my I have specialists 
that are very good has allowed me to be able to be 62 and not be on a chronic narcotic. I have severe neuropathy from surviving gangrene from the multiple organ failure, but gabapentin is what I use for that. Narcotic doesn't even touch it, that neuropathy. But mm. I'm not on it. The only time I need a narcotic is if I have a sickle cell crisis, and I haven't had, I've had one last year because of trying arthritis and it didn't work in the drug. But in 10 years, that's the only sickle cell crisis I've had. That's amazing. The thing that I think you hit on there is this is a perfect example of, okay, you want the government to spend money. And people always go, well, why do we want them to spend money? Like, that's always a problem. Like, generally speaking, people don't want the government to spend money. But this is a case where ounce of prevention, pound of cure. If we can cut ER visits in half by spending, I don't know what the number is for money, but if you know, we can cut ER visits in half for sickle cell patients, that's more people who are productive, who are working, and we're less we're money we're spending on the outrageous cost of ERs these days. So I think that that's a, that's a good call out there. So thanks for sharing that. And again, listeners, check out the show notes. I'm going to have a ton of info on sickle cell in there for you. So I'm going to help my part to do the education without the government spending money. So that's the promise I told Glenda I would, I would do on this part. I don't know how many people it's going to hit, but you know, I get a couple thousand listeners an episode. So hopefully all of you who listen, will go read those and learn something. I don't have any CE for it, but just go do your due diligence, please. And read that. So, all right, Glenda, I have to ask you this. Like I ask everybody who comes on the podcast and your takes can be very different because you're a patient advocate, you've worked in hospitals and you're not a pharmacist. So if you could change one thing about pharmacy that isn't really a law, just like how pharmacies operate, this, that, and the other, what would it be? I have, because basically I'm able to advocate for myself really well, and most of my medications, I have about, what, four prescription meds that I take, you know, for a long time. The online pharmacies, mail-order pharmacies, I have been able to get those medications and keep in line with them, you know, making sure I'm getting my refills on Mm -hmm. time and so forth. But in speaking with, because I've actually kind of polled our support group about this, because a lot of them are a lot more sicker than I am. Some of them do not like the mail-order pharmacy system. Yeah. Because if they have to get refills or if something is prescribed right away, they got to wait to get it. But I think it's because some people don't understand how the system works. Yeah, it's not easy. <laughs> their their, their uh, insurance. If the physician's office is not is is prescribing the physician prescribing you something, and his office staff hasn't checked. Okay, is your insurance going to pay for this? Can I send a ninety day into them? If they haven't done that front end, then that's leaving the patient hanging. I've had very good care where my physicians have that system. When they say, okay, you got to take such and such, unless it's something immediate like antibiotic for an infection, you know, then they're going to give me a script right then. And most likely they'll even call in, call it in to my local pharmacy. But what's happening is a lot of people are losing that connection. And actually, that's not really the pharmacy. Oh, this is the way the system is set up. And if the physician does not help the patient with that, it makes it a lot worse for the patient. Oh, yeah. So my understanding is you want more people to be able to access 
maybe the pharmacy they want or have an expanded network or just completely open access to pharmacies so we can streamline and kind of cut through the some of the red tape of the insurance system with their care. Yes. Okay. Yes. That's something numerous people have said in the podcast, but it's good to hear it from somebody who's on the patient side because that means that's what really counts. So, yes, especially <laughs> with high cost. One of my, I take Jade New, which is an iron chelator, it's $8,000 a month. <laughs> my copay is, I have Medicare, my copay is a third of that. And so, of course, I got to go to a, one of these organizations that assist in paying the copays for. <laughs> high-cost meds, yeah. such as Patient Access Network, Good Day, so forth. Then it got to the point, like that medication, it got to the point where those organizations were running out of funds. Yeah. So now Novartis, who makes that drug, <laughs> they're providing it to me. They just bill the, the, the uh, insurance company on their part, and they eat the cost of the, of the uh, copay. And I think that's a crazy model that you have your drugs so expensive that nobody can. Well, and never mind. I don't know about that drug specifically, but I know some of the other ones, right? Like we'll look at Truvada for HIV, which is a whole nother discussion. But, you know, they were selling their medication for 2000 bucks for a bottle or a one-month supply because, you know, it's HIV, you got to have it. And they would then essentially get paid from the pharmacy who bought the drug, who would then get paid from the insurance company, and they'd have that access card. And the access card, all it did was basically wipe off the remainder that is on that copay or right. on that payment part. But the stupid thing is, is it only costs them $5 a bottle to make it, if not less. And we're seeing generics now market for like 13 20 bucks, somewhere in that range. So really, they were just wiping that off, and they were still making money in the back end. It didn't matter if they got paid 1000 bucks or even 500 bucks, whatever it is. And I know that they can write off that part that they quote unquote write off as a business deduction for like tax liability. So that gets into a whole different structure of pharmacy, yes. which is probably three more episodes by itself. But yeah, that is nuts. And yes. It's, uh, it's so frustrating. The, how convoluted the rabbit hole of healthcare and pharmacy alone really is. But moving on to the last question, if you could change one thing in pharmacy that maybe is a law or like federal state, whatever it is, what would it be and why? That one's kind of a hard one for me because I know there are, I know some of the basic rules mm -hmm. and laws, and I know there's things in the pipeline, but I would probably, it would it would be about the cost of the medication. This is, this is more on the pharmaceutical company. That's fair. The cost of the medications that they charge, these American companies, charge us 10 times more. For yeah. drugs than they do in other countries. I've known people that needed EpiPen and they drove to Canada to get it because it's so much cheaper than here. Yeah. This exact same product. That is where I would go with the law is when you have multi million dollar executives running corporations that are basically stripping us. And I know people such as yourself, I don't know how you do it. <laughs> because you're kind of in the middle. You're in the middle of everybody. You're in the middle of the physician. You're in the middle of the pharmaceutical company. And how in the world you keep your private, smaller pharmacies going, I do not know. 
Yeah, well, you're seeing less of them. Um, where I work now, obviously, we have a di- very different model. But yeah, you're seeing less and less independence for that reason. And you're also seeing more pharmacists burnout stress and because the, the, the amount of numbers they're just throwing at us to try and make it more profitable is crazy. So I'm actually glad that you said that and you recognize that too, because that's, again, patient perception is what we're here for. And to hear a patient who recognizes that, because we don't like charging high prices either. Like when we got to tell someone, hey, this is like a thousand bucks and we know they can't afford it. It, it. it doesn't make our day better. Like we're not Scrooge McDuck back here, just diving in our money bins. If anything, we have very narrow margins with a lot of this stuff. So right. especially after the insurance gets through, I was actually filling in today and seeing some of the reimbursements. It just makes you shrug at like how this works. But yeah, so hey, Glinda, I appreciate you coming on the podcast, sharing your story. It's so cool to me because you're so well-versed as the patient side is you're a perfect person to go between. So if I could have a magic wand, I'd want to clone you so we can have more people who know to kind of go out there and educate, be patient advocates, because I feel like if we just put you in the area, there's a lot of sickle cells and we just paid you a decent wage to be in the ERs, you could help the doctors and then help the pharmacists. So, you know, thank you for sharing your journey. It really does mean a lot to me that you were doing that. And, you know, thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for what you do. And having a podcast, I had not known about your podcast, and I went on and looked at some of after we met, and I listened to some of your podcasts. I was like, oh, wow, <laughs> this, is, this is great, you know. Well, thank and, you. And uh, so I'm kind of getting the word out to my circle of people to, to listen, to listen in, because one thing is we really need our public to be educated about how healthcare really works in this country. <laughs> You know, we just need people in healthcare to understand it. But yeah, especially other lay people need to learn more too. Yeah, because the people have the power to make our government change Yep. on a lot of these things. But if they don't educate themselves and they just sit there and whine, but don't talk to the people in power, then, yep. you know, what are you complaining for? It's, it's not going to fix it. So... Myself, I want to clone you. There's a couple of doctors I've had that I've wanted cloned that I told them, yeah, especially when they retired and I was crying for three days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I get that. Um, thank you so much for allowing me to be on. And the head of our support group, uh, founder of our support group, Adrian Kincaid, when I was uh, I told her I was going to be on, she was like, oh, God, that's great. Because <laughs> we, never, we never hear from pharmacists. Yeah, you know, we're... Pharmacists don't speak up a heck of a lot. We're, that's just our personality, and I'm trying to do what I can to change that, although I know I'm not the person who's going to fix everything. I just, you know, that's just how I am. But either way, hey, yep. I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Listeners, check out the show notes on this one. They're going to be long. They're going to be educational. And I'm also going to include, as long as Glenn is okay, okay with it, a way that we can, if you want to reach out to her for her advocacy work. She's 62. I wouldn't believe she was 62 until she told me that. And for all the stuff she's went through with sickle cell, there's not many people who are going to be able to give you more stories, more details, and be able to just explain it so well and connect Mm -hmm. the patient to the healthcare provider side. So, Glenda, thanks again for coming on. I appreciate it. You're so sweet. You think (laughs) you didn't know I was 62. (laughs) I did not. It was a we we were both volunteering somewhere and we ran into each other. But, listeners, as always, thanks for listening to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics. Thank you.